Okay, so there should be a Hello, and welcome to the No Man's Land podcast for the first time ever via Skype as we all come to terms with the new normal in the face of the COVID-19 outbreak. Steve, welcome. Thanks, Martin. Um, these are unprecedented times, Steve. A few weeks ago, few of us had ever heard of COVID-19. Now it's the biggest emergency most of us can remember. Um, remind us of the government response so far. Well, yeah, I think like a lot of people, I'm really coming to terms with um, the fact of this pandemic and the changes that are being made. Uh, there's a lot to go over the government response. I mean, a few days ago, we started off with uh, being told about the importance of hygiene and hand washing, and it sort of drip, drip from there. Um, uh, we've had social distancing now for a few days. We've been asked not to go to pubs and things. Uh, people with uh, symptoms are being told to self-isolate, as the term is. Uh, and of course, last night we heard about the actual closure of pubs, of um, uh, gyms and other places. Uh, obviously, the day before we had schools closed. So it's been a rapid pace of change. On top of that, the, the sort of scale of the economic fallout has become really clear and the kind of measures, and I'm not going to go into them all at this point, maybe we'll get into them in a sec, but the kind of measures the Chancellor's been announcing have been uh, just kind of absolutely mind-boggling um, sort of thing we haven't seen, certainly since the mantle crash, and probably they are more, um, uh, even bigger than those. So, okay, so there's been a lot of talk about following the science. So can you just talk about the sort of the science and the political response on that side? And then I'll come on to talk about the economics. Yeah, I mean, there was a very um, sort of somber and seemingly uh, to the point kind of front initially. So we saw Boris Johnson flanked by the chief scientific advisor and chief medical officer. Um, and we have done for many of his press conferences. And so the initially when they did the first press conference, feeling was well. It was very reassuring. Uh, the UK government has a good record in terms of using science and its infrastructure for doing that. And um, there was a feeling that, yes, we would follow the science. What then happened, and has happened since, is a lot of the um, slightly contradictory uh, uh, analyses that have been coming out from places like the World Health Organization uh, around what the best response is, uh, and also different responses from different countries around the world, in Europe uh, particularly, but also uh, in Asia, where they seem to have cracked down very hard and very successfully on the virus. Um, so what we've been seeing then is a, an argument about both what the what the best approach is based on the science, what the scientific advice is actually saying, but also what the judgments government has having to make around that. Um, should I say a bit more about the context of that? Sure. Yes, please. So in, initially, we started off seemingly with a kind of... Um, I think what has been is being commonly described as a mitigation strategy. So you would have heard uh, Patrick Balance, the chief scientific advisor, talk about um, spreading the outbreak out, sort of slowing the spread, but not actually containing it. Um, this was the idea that we'd all get it, but what we'd do is uh, we'd slow it down so the health service can cope and and hopefully prevent older people from getting it. Um, some new analysis came out that's been very influential from uh, Imperial College London about the US and the UK impact. Um, and they changed some of their uh, the factors they were looking at around the different numbers of hospital beds you might need, about the numbers of people who get the virus who go on to have sort of complicated symptoms. And they realised that even with sort of uh, a pretty good mitigation effort, um, we'd still find uh, that the NHS are completely overwhelmed and the death toll would be halved from what it could have been, but still 
absolutely massive. And it, it seems like the government has adjusted its approach on the basis of that. So we've, we've obviously seen more draconian measures in the last few days. And reading between the lines, a lot of people think and a lot of journalists have been saying that it was that change in modelling. And I'm sure they have other information behind the scenes that has made the government realise, no, we can't let this spread. We've really got to contain it with these quite draconian measures, even if it means, as we've talked about, really quite massive economic impacts. So one of the most crucial things in this, as indeed in all such crisis, not that we could have any really similar ones to look back on, given how unprecedented this is, is the importance of communication. So how successful has the government been at communicating the various strategies that it has embraced? So whether that is the initially sort of more lenient delay strategy, sorry, it's not the the delay strategy, Um, but how successful has the government been at its various strategies that it has put in place throughout this crisis um it i i do have a few things to say about that but i think it's worth also saying that this must be incredibly hard because not only are you under a kind of scrutiny that you would never uh can never normally imagine but also everything you say is impacting not only uh business but also people's behaviors in a way that um collectively could result in a you know loss of life for saving lives so it is incredibly difficult with communications. And I think you rightly point out that that's one of the main reasons it's so important. Um, one thing that seemingly done right to a degree was the thing uh, we talked about a minute ago, which was having the, the top scientific people talking to the press, flanking the prime minister. I think that's very reassuring. And, and hearing from people who are qualified and both these, both the, the CMO and the, and the chief scientific advisor are very well qualified on, in general, on this topic. Um, I think that was a good reassuring part of the common strategy and to base it around the science, I think gives it credibility. Um, I mean, it's generally well known that we trust sort of health professionals and scientists a lot more than we trust politicians or the public at large do. Um, So I think that was right. Two things have been perhaps less good. One is the kind of, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the kind of drip, drip briefing of things. The idea that we've got a lot of rumours coming out and there's a sense in which our people uh, in the normal way that happens with other policy issues in government, sort of floating these ideas before they happen. And there's lots of rumours about. Um, mind you, some of the media don't really help this by by tweeting certain things, but we seem to be hearing about measures coming before they've been officially and sort of formally announced. And that that leads to a lot of uncertainty. Like, you know, I'm like you, I'm in London thinking a few days ago, we're starting to hear rumours of heavy lockdowns and things. I saw tweets about the um, uh, army being on the streets. Half it not true. But there's this sense of uncertainty isn't good. And some of that, I think, may have come from the way certain government departments have briefed stuff informally uh, and then the media have kind of let it out. Um, the, the other th- so the third thing I'd say is about some of the advice. Um, and so we had the first of guidance on social distancing and isolation things the other day. Um, but when you read it, there was quite a lot of ambiguity there. And this is now more of a policy point than is a is a comms point, but it is still very, well, I think it's going to be more important. So you were sort of advised to not go to pubs. Does that mean absolutely never go to the pub? Or does it mean try and go to the pub less? Um, and then they mentioned pubs, they mentioned restaurants and theatres. 
But um, until they closed gyms, yes, they hadn't mentioned gyms. Or what about cafes? Do I go take takeout from a cafe? Or is it okay to sit in a cafe? So maybe you say something that's common sense, but I'm not sure all the the real you know the real priority things to do and not do are are intuitive to people. So certainly, lots of people were saying you need to be really clear: either close it or or don't close it. Don't leave people to to make all these judgments day to day and. Um, so I think that while it's very difficult, I think maybe they could have been more crystal clear with, with people about what we're supposed to be doing and not. You think they could have taken a more, effectively, a more aggressive strategy, you think? Uh, may, may, I think, so that, that's a separate point, I think. The, on, the, on the communications, I think they need to really make it clear and say, you should not do this. Even if they're not closing the pub, they're saying, the government is saying, you should not do this. Advising, the kind of language that we're advising this, uh, because then if you're, you're advised to do it if you're sort of an otherwise healthy person. If you are someone in an at-risk group, you are strongly advised. It was all a little bit vague for me. Yeah. Um, so part of it, just how they were wording it, there's another issue about actually, should they have got really, and they've gone more draconian in, in, other, in other countries in Europe as well, should they really have locked things down and closed things um, sooner? Uh, and, and that's the sort of mitigation versus containment thing again, to say, actually, do you try and just really stamp, stamp on this very, in a very draconian manner in a, in a short period of time? Or do you sort of try and mitigate it? And um, so those are two slightly different things, I think, there. Yeah, okay. Um, so should we move on to the sort of the wider flow of information. So something that you you talked about now, how much this is us as politically interested people and how much this is a genuine issue is the sort of the flow of information by anonymous sources. Now, that is perhaps an unhelpful thing. We've had rumours about, as you say, the sort of the London lockdown. Is that just something you just... You just have to accept, or is that a serious um, shortcoming with the government's approach to this in terms of um, control controlling the flow of information? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say because, of course, I don't know um, whether uh, people in government are actually briefing journalists and others um, of these things kind of quietly behind the scenes, um, or whether... Rumours have just broken out that the government that has very little to do or nothing to do with the government, um, and 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 then it's actually the people who are spreading it on social media or or in the sort of mainstream media that that are at fault. The the suspicion has been, the sense has been that some of this has come through um, uh, through government sources, uh, and also there is some stuff you can point to, like you've seen various ministers give interviews and 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 go on. Um, go on TV to talk about this and maybe speculate a bit more than they could helpfully have done. I think Matt Hancock was on TV a little bit early, sort of, sort of speculating various things that, um, that that he wasn't formally announcing. I'm not sure that approach is quite right. Um, but, it, but, in, but in all, it's hard to say how much is, is the kind of media um, maybe not being as sombre about this as they would have been perhaps about certain issues of this gravity in the past or how much of it is the government um, being somewhat unclear with its communications. So actually talking about speculating is quite a useful segue. Is there a useful communication strategy around 
floating what seem initially very um, extensive, almost outrageous policy options, which by then actually promoting something less serious appears, well, actually, you can't really argue, but that seems perfectly reasonable by comparison. So if you talk about a complete shutdown of London and then you just close the pubs, people go, well, that's not so bad. They've just closed down the pubs. They're talking about you know, requiring papers to, you know, police checking people's papers if they were all going outside at all. So d does it, by floating more extreme measures, do you then seem reasonable by comparison? Yeah, I think there might be an element of truth in that. And it's really hard to tell how the sort of public at large will consider it and, and behave. Um, I mean, you do risk that kind of sense of uncertainty uh, around things when you um, when you do that and you're not sure which source to believe or not. But yeah, may, maybe that maybe that is a deliberate strategy. OK, so let's move on to the economic stimulus package. So I'm just going to give a rundown of some of the economic measures, which are incredible, really. So the Bank of England has cut the base rate to 0.1%. There's been a £350 billion package of loans, grants and tax breaks focused on employers. Now, this includes a deferring of business rates and VAT, uh, government-backed loans up to five of up to five million pounds, which are interest-free for up to twelve months. A part of this bailout has actually fallen foul of EU rules, which seems to me to slightly bring the priorities of that body into question at the moment. Uh, there's also been a package of employees, which has been dubbed a COVID jobs retention scheme. And this includes quite incredibly state stepping in to pay people's wages up to 80% of wages up to two and a half thousand pound a month which be covered by HMRC backdated to the 1st of March. We've also seen a seven billion pounds injection into the welfare system which sounds enormous however this increases universal credit by just one thousand pounds a year for the next 12 months which works out as an extra 20 quid a week to basic claimants, which is not as much, it's, it's not a very big amount compared to the overall sort of injection. Uh, there's working tax credit, there's a basic element for those on low incomes being boosted by the same sort of amount. There's quantitative easing, all of this is basically underpinned by quantitative easing of 635 billion, which I'll come back to in a moment. There's also been a uh, package of around about a billion pounds for renters, which includes universal credit claimants, and this is by increasing housing benefit. Now, where is all of this money coming from? The Bank of England. So on Thursday, they pledged 200 billion pounds to go into the economy through quantitative easing, which is not buying bonds issued by the government directly, but buy them off asset managers who buy them from the government. Um, so basically, we're, we're printing money now we can come back to sort of assess some of this stuff but these are quite incredible numbers at never mind in peacetime certainly but really at any time given that um, the government was working towards a 40 billion pound worth of borrowing in a budget which seems like a lifetime ago 
Yeah, yeah, they they are quite staggering numbers, and, and the difficulty I have is trying to put them all into context because um, they are so much bigger than things we would normally see uh, announced in a budget or or put in a manifesto or or anything like that. Um, I suppose I suppose the government could see them as like hopefully relatively temporary measures. So I think some of them you're talking about going for the next twelve months of the max type thing, which does mean they're less there's less of a burden on state spending longer term because you have you know, a really, really expensive year and in a, in a, in a, hopefully in a good scenario, they'll be able to take them away after a little while. Um, but it does seem to kind of blow up all our conceptions of um, what is fiscally responsible, what, what, what the kind of limits of what you can do. I, you know, essentially, we're going to borrow a huge amount of money um, and take on a huge amount of liability and loans um, and I have to deal with that at some point. Yeah, and actually, I think you raise a very good point, which is about fiscal responsibility. Now, effectively, this is a this is a, a balance of the lesser of two evils, which is more fiscally responsible to put all of this. Well, not just fiscally re- responsible. What, what is more financially responsible? We're not just talking about the fiscal side. We are talking about the monetary side, which admittedly is not so much in politicians' hands. But let's talk about this as a whole. Which is more responsible, paying all of this money out initially or um, allowing people to suffer the brunt? Now, basically, because this is an, as with all things, this is the various impacts are borne unequally by different sections of society. And it's worsened by weaknesses in the wider economic system. So, for example, the UK has seen a jobs boom over recent years but at very low pay. So actually median weekly earnings for a full-time employee in 2019 adjusted for inflation nearly 3% lower than in 2008. The Resolution Foundation has shown that it's lower earners who are especially hard hit by this crisis. They tend to work in non-food retail, in restaurants that have seen demand just fall away almost to nothing overnight and usually these people can't work from home now our welfare system is not perhaps the most efficient or at least it can be characterized that way because something like 40 percent of all social security spending goes on pensions not necessarily poor people so this might have to change sort of longer term so the government stepping in to pay wages initially for three months and up to two and a half grand seems to be a very good measure and has been welcomed by um, the two, two, at least two of the three Labour leadership contenders as well as the heads uh, of some of the trade union movement. Now, policy exchange, think tank, said that monetary policy is pretty much maxed out and I think that's what we're, we're saying. We are... Um, at the moment, seeing that it's very effective for some things, but very ineffective for others. So I personally think it's a very good thing that Chancellor has reached for the fiscal lever. So given the sort of likely downward pressures on inflation due to demand being sucked out of the economy, and actually inflation has not been pushing the sort of the upper boundaries of, say, for example, Bank of England's um, target on inflation, given that the economy has been sort of just limping along for quite a long time. I actually don't think a looser fiscal policy is such a bad idea. I think it might be time to embrace a bit of uh, sort of loose fiscal policy and get that money supply going. So the 
The Resolution Foundation think tank has estimated paying the wages of one million employees for three months will cost the Treasury $4.2 billion. Now, overall, these people are going to be out of work otherwise. We have to balance that initial cost, coming back to fiscal responsibility or to financial responsibility more broadly. What costs more? Well, is either do you pay these right, you know, these people's wages to keep them effectively in work versus paying out benefits of them being out of work? In addition to thinking about the payment of the benefits, you also have to think about the erosion of skills and the sort of longer term impacts on the economy. So, I personally think that you have to it almost unprecedentedly, but similar in some ways to the financial crisis, which one is the greater cost? Paying people to stay in work or paying people benefits when they sit at home not in work? Can't obviously find a job in the near future. They'll be trapped at home. They'll be self-isolated. The demand has come from the, the economy, so the jobs won't be there. And then those skills will atrophy and people will be left um, in a, a bad situation. As we know, the economic impacts longer term of people sitting at home doing nothing are very, very bad, very damaging. So I think although this is an incredible amount of money, perhaps it is a price worth paying, I would say. I think I think you're I think you're right about that. I mean, just thinking back a few weeks when we thought there was going to be an issue around coronavirus and we didn't quite have an idea that we were facing a pandemic on this scale, or at least the public didn't. Um, most of us probably thought of it, or I thought of it, might be a bit like a, a couple of weeks of bad snow. You know, we can't, people can't go out and do too much, but then the demand just gets pushed a few weeks in a line. It ends up being, you know, the kind of economic growth is. What's clear now, I think, is that the impact of this is going to be so big and potentially last such a long time. There'll be real kind of damage. You mentioned things like skills erosion. Obviously, we're talking about job losses now, business going under. These things will cause real damage to both the kind of demand and supply in the economy, um, which is like, I think now you use the right comparison with the financial crash, because that obviously had a, uh, an impact for many years. And then some, I think, feel we're still feeling some of it. So uh, it, the government really does have to do whatever it can to prevent the economy from collapsing over the next whatever amount of months this takes. And there's talk of there being some impact for at least a year. Um, yeah. It's hard to imagine what will happen to the kind of all the connections that, that kind of keep us going and keep the economy going um, if essentially our movement and many of the things we can do are shut down for a period of 12 to 18 months. That's right. Absolutely. And I think we do have to look longer term. So people, not surprisingly, especially given how much time people have got on their hands, so people have been looking at some of the longer term impacts. And I think personally one of the impacts that this could have is re-evaluating things like supply chains and consumption so there's been some talk for a while about reducing the sort of environmental impact of our lives through for example changing our behavior about buying all, all sorts of things from china and i wonder whether this epidemic might have not only a um impact on sentiment and for example how people um sort of expect to be able to consume things but i wonder whether it's also possible that more infrastructure might be put in place so that um 
buying things more locally has uh, becomes more sort of economically viable. So that, for example, rather than buying things in from China as much or from elsewhere as much, it won't just be the the sort of the sentiment that will change and people think it is more acceptable to whether it's pay a little bit more or whatever. But actually, the infrastructure will be put in place to make it more viable in cost terms to be able to source things more locally. And lo so longer term, this could potentially have benefit in terms of reducing the economic impact of our consumption as part of our lives. Yeah, maybe. I think I think that like, you, you move on to this really this thing that we're all starting to think about is like what will the world look like when we come out of this, whenever it will be. And certainly you know, worry about the economy, worry about the state of our health services and things, but also like how will it change the way we behave and think? And and that might be one way. Um another way, of course, is that I'm now very conscious of lots of local businesses around me. And yeah. so um while while also trying not to, you know, go out and, and be, be anywhere near people. Um, if I'm going to do shopping and things, you know, people are and I am th thinking about trying to buy from those small businesses because I know that they're going to be really struggling now. So lots of cafes around here are, are, are turning into little grocery stores. And um, I wonder with this kind of sentiment that, that, I'm, that I'm describing uh, of people looking out for small businesses and understanding their, their sort of worth and impact on the community, um, maybe that's something that will continue longer term. That's yeah, that's absolutely a possibility. And also thinking in terms of the profound changes that we might see going forward. In terms of a change to government into um, sort of involvement in people's economic and non-economic lives in terms of the extent of the involvement and the reach, I think that probably the only real um, historical precedents would be the two world wars and what we saw after the two world wars were profound changes because once governments have stepped in to protect certain aspects of people's lives people tend to want to hold on to them they're very reluctant to see their um their protection sort of wound back i suppose for want of a better phrase so this has the potential to change the economic relationship, or political really, everything's political in these sense, between the state and the individual in terms of things like uh, employment protection and protection for once you, people, once they sort of lose their jobs, go out of work. So it's possible that the sort of Anglo-Saxon model of a relatively small state, which is not enormously protective of its citizens in, term, in terms of the economics, um, this could profoundly change to becoming much more the sort of classically um, Scandinavian model of where it's far more interventionist. Maybe people become willing to pay a bit more because of the protection they've received. Maybe that's changes in what the state does in order to sort of shift things and afford things. But it's pure speculation, but it, it, if we can't speculate now, then when can we? That uh, we might well see quite a profound change to the balance between the free market and state intervention as a result of this crisis. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a little bit less sure about that. I think that remains to be seen. It, it could be that this crisis is seen as something that 
um, it is contained in the period that it goes on for, and people kind of draw a line after it. Um, but that, 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 that said, I think we have seen a trend towards people wanting more big state. I mean, we, as we talked about in the podcast before, we have a Conservative Party now that is willing to spend regardless of coronavirus. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, this might push it a bit a bit further down the line. I'm not sure we'll... Um, it's, I think it's too early to say whether we're going to see uh, a sort of 1945 moment, if you, if you will, where after the World War we had the NHS and things like that. It's possible. But um, that, I think that's a long way off at the moment. Or for, we're, we're a long way off from being able to tell at the moment. Yeah, I, I think that that's a, that's just a fair point. I think my um, my point is only that it can be... Well, on one hand, it can be difficult to take things back once they've been initially put in place. People tend to get used to having um, the support and it can be a sort of a unifying thing. So there's a greater sense of solidarity um, that comes in situations like this and often the, a welfare state is underpinned by a sense of solidarity so that could have an impact and um, just in terms of solidarity we're seeing sort of local groups being set up both sort of whatsapp groups and online technology groups like that but also sort of um, in real life groupings of people set up whether that's uh, the local, the WhatsApp group set up for my block of flats where someone's saying, oh, I'm, does anyone know where I can get some bread? And someone else saying, oh, I've got a bit, I'll leave it on your doorstep or um, where my mum lives, people saying that they can, you know, do certain shopping for people or things like that. So whether there's a sort of public service sentiment bounce back, um, then that could actually be intertwined perhaps or impactful on a, um, a change in, in the way we do for the welfare state potentially. Yeah, no, definitely. And I'm, I'm also uh, seeing a lot of that stuff and I've been helping some of the community groups and that, that could be a really um, a big change could be the amount of people that do that kind of thing and then continue doing those kind of things later on. Yes, absolutely. Um, but I think we should actually talk about the broader public opinion. And so what have the public reaction been so far? What have the opinion polls saying? Um, I've managed to find a couple of polls. And the first one I read was uh, in last week's Observer. Um, and obviously a week ago feels like centuries ago at the moment. Uh, but at the time, um, the various questions asked. One of the interesting ones was, is the government uh, over or underreacting or getting it about right? 41% said about right. But certainly more were saying underreacting than overreacting. So he has a 25% slightly underreacting, 16% significantly underreacting. The percentages for overreacting were quite small. Um, so it seemed the public were broadly happy with what the government was doing, but anything wanting more. Now, since then, we've seen two things happen. One is the government's done a lot more. The other one is that the, 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 the impact of the virus um, and how profound it's going to be that has become clearer. Um, so we might see people happier. We also might see people even more worried about it and uh, uh, wanting even more action. I think um, that remains to be seen. A more recent poll, so this is in the Express, um, was around the confidence in what the government's doing. And actually 59% were in, in, that, in that poll was saying the government should be doing more, should be doing more drastic action. action. So it seems like uh, actually as people have seen um, 
seen this as a bigger and bigger issue. They want more, not less. Uh, again, we, yeah. that was before we've seen some of the, the really big measures come out. Um, you know, just yesterday, pubs were getting closed and things. So, um, again, maybe people will be happier. Uh, uh, but that's what we know at the moment. Okay, well, I mean, it's certainly, I think, fair to say that the, the political centre ground, such as you can talk about things like that at the moment, on both economic intervention and more general, sort of broader state intervention, has moved far, very much away from the previous sort of non-interventionist side that we might have characterised as sort of at least the economics of, say, the Cameron government. Um, we're, it's a very much more interventionist politics sort of at the moment. But there's something else that we need to talk about that brings together public reaction and communication and potentially um, this sort of intervention. And that's the issue of social media. So informa the information flow in terms, we, talk we talked about the sort of um, perhaps the conventional means of uh, information spread, but now we're seeing the sort of random lies and um, fake posting and things like that on social media. So how is this impacting things? Um, yeah, it's hard to say that, like, we, we talked about, I think, uh, early in the week, um, things like fake stories about ibuprofen. Um, that one was particularly uh, dangerous, I think, because they were fake stories, but they had some truth to them. So they were kind of overblown uh, reactions to things and rumours. Um, and when there is a bit of truth, or you can point to some, say, World Health Organization guidance and stuff, it gives it more credibility and makes it hard to find fact from fiction. Um, I think this is a lot worse in the US, I get the impression, where, where sort of commentators on the right have had sort of conspira conspiracy theory things around the, around the coronavirus, um, and then various bits of um, some quite unsavory racism stuff towards Chinese people have slipped in. So um, I think that is all magnified by social media. Um, yeah. What's the thing I've noticed more, actually, is I think is the kind of call out culture. Um, and we talked about this in terms of some of the uh, the more kind of rights issues, like things like transphobia or the pledges in the Labour Party around uh, removing transphobic people from the party. Um, what we're now seeing a lot of or, or a lot of our attention, I think, moved to, and I, I couldn't tell you whether these are the same people, but you'll get pictures of people sitting in pubs um, yeah. and lots of aggressive comments directed at them or doing other things. Um, now, I think given the gravity situation, you'd say they're frowning on that kind of stuff is certainly justified. Um, but there does seem to be an online um, social media culture of virtue signaling by heavy criticism and being quite rude about the people that are doing, um, perhaps not following the guidance as you might like. Um, mm. And I wonder whether this might continue. And I'm not sure whether that will ultimately be something that shames people into doing um, the right thing or at the end up with a backlash because some people are like, actually, no, I'm going to go about my life. And, they, and there have been a few, I think, videos being shared of, of people saying, no, no, you know, screw this. I'm going to go about things as normal. Don't tell me what to do. And it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out as this goes on. So it does look like we're in it for the long haul, whether the long haul is a few months or, or yeah. a really long time. We don't know yet, but it's certainly going to have some, some running to go on. Yeah, absolutely. So I think we should just close by talking about the political fallout. So the government are facing some very daunting choices, but there seems by and large to be a 
um, culture, a climate of wanting to give the government the sort of benefit of the doubt. So what is the political climate at the moment and what might the fallout be? Um, I suspect the climate at the moment has been uh, more subdued because people... Uh, I think in 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 around Parliament know the the gravity of this, and also know that any any sort of being observed to be opportunistic or overly political is not going to go down well right now. Yeah. So I suspect politicians in in opposition parties uh, are biding their time, uh, waiting to see how this develops before they start being more vocally critical. And we've had some exceptions of that. And Rory Stewart, I think, is the big one. Obviously, running to be as independent mayor of London now, yeah. um, he has been calling for faster action. Um, for a while and for really severe lockdowns. At the moment, I, my, my reaction to when he first came out and did that, I, th- I thought, I, I don't think that's a very good strategy and I think you, may, you might be on the wrong side of this. It seems like the events are bearing quite in, kind of in his favour, actually, in terms of yeah. whether judgment on that was right. We'll, we'll, let's, let's see. Um, so I think for the moment, we'll have a period of, of relative um, calm on the big P political front, unless things really start to go wrong. Um, but I think taking a step back for a sec, at the end of this, or whenever the end is perceived, we're, we're going to have a sort of massive moment. There will, be, there, will, there will be some sort of big inquisition about whether we got this right. And certainly we are perceived to have done things differently from the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. If it goes worse here or better here, that will have a huge impact. Um, we've talked a lot, or uh, ever since the sort of uh, Brexit referendum, we've talked a lot about trusting government, trust trust in experts. Well, yeah. those two things are front and centre. Uh, yeah. And if this, if this was perceived to have gone wrong, I think trust in experts could take a huge hit and that would be a real shame. Um, yeah. But equally, trust in government will, will, will take a huge hit. So it, it, it's possible we come out of this with either saying that um, uh, either this being a huge thing for populists and that all those things we've been talking about getting worse, or it could be people are reminded of of the fact that many lives were saved by techn- technocratic and scientific competence. Mm. And actually we start looking more for, looking back to kind of the managerialism of the Blair days a little bit. Um, and I've read and I've read things that people are taking, already taking different interpretations where they think they're gonna, where they're gonna end up. But I think that that's, it's a massive moment for either the sort of the trust, in, trust in government and experts getting worse or getting a lot better. And I guess we're gonna have to wait and see. Yeah. I mean, one just final question to close. Do you think there is a chance of a unity government? Um, no, no, I think we would have one now. If we had a, a minority government, I think we'd have one now already. We'd have to. With a big majority like this, there's just, there's just no need for that. Um, yeah. I actually want to raise a couple of other bits because thinking longer term, um, as we've talked a lot on the pod about uh, sort of not just divides in, in politics, but also divides in the country. And it's really occurred to me that what we're seeing is uh, the generation of younger people asked to make quite big social sacrifices around their lives, changing their lives, and quite big economic sacrifices. These things could go on but get much bigger for the health of primarily older people. Most of the people who are vulnerable are older, um, to to losing their lives are older. And how that plays out with the kind of wider uh, intergenerational debate, obviously we've talked about older people having generous pensions, tending to be homeowners, those kind of things. Uh, how that plays out um, could be very big, either in the sense that there's uh, uh, young people feel they're owed more for having made even more sacrifices, or in the sense that this goes wrong, 
there's a sense of which in, in which young people didn't do their duty. If if if, if there's a sense of which people should have gone to pub less and things. I think yeah. that that kind of divide could be um, could be something that comes out of this uh, longer term. Mm. No, interesting. Um, yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much, Steve. That's been uh, a very useful sort of um, consideration of where we are at the moment. So. To all of our listeners, if you have listened to this, thank you very much. I hope you found it um, useful and insightful. And uh, we hope to speak to you again before too long. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.